to Minter Dialogue, episode number 451. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. This week's interview is with Natalie Nahai, a prior guest on my show. Natalie is an author and is known for giving keynote speeches and consultancy on persuasive technology ethics, and the psychology behind evolving consumer behaviors. A member of the BEMA Human Insights Council, she also hosts the Hive podcast and contributes to national publications, television, and radio on the impact of technology in our lives. In this discussion with Natalie, we discuss her new book, Business Unusual, Values, Uncertainty, and the Psychology of Brand Resilience, out by Kogan Page. The changing notion of our collective moral compass. How personalization thwarts empathy. How to enhance a brand reputation through ethics and fair treatment of employees. Empathy intersecting with AI and the new form of post-heroic leadership. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please consider the drop in your rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show with Natalie. Natalie Nahai, it's lovely to have you back on the show. You have written another cracker book, Business <laughs> Unusual. Um, you're also a speaker like me and host of a podcast, the Hive podcast. However, in your own words, Natalie, who are you? Well, first of all, thank you so much for being in conversation and bringing me into the show again. It's a real, it's a real pleasure. Um, so I am someone who broadly speaking, looks at how to use behavioral science research and insights and apply them ethically in the realm of persuasive technology, marketing, communications, brand, and more recently looking at evolving consumer behaviors and how we can meet people's deeper, more fundamental needs when we go about our business, whether that's within organizations or delivering goods and services to customers. Well, I, I so agree with you, Natalie, that business can be a force for good, but it doesn't feel like it's always that way. Mm. In your book, you you talk about a collective moral compass <laughs> where we might be in search of a new north, we as punters and customers. Mm. How would you describe that new north, Natalie? So I think one of the things that was um, predicted erroneously I think when the lockdowns came into effect and people were really in you know at risk of losing their job many people did a lot of people lost their livelihoods and income a lot of people were saying well we'll predict that the response will be to tighten our purse strings and to buy for convenience uh, and make sure that we're basically getting food on the table and of course that was true but what we also saw especially among younger folks so gen z and millennials was that people were much more likely to consolidate and solidify their perspective on their values make more values driven purchases change shopping behaviors so you know in, in one massive study with a hundred thousand people across 60 markets around 65 percent of respondents across a whole range of age groups actually um, were much more interested in championing local produce. You've also got people who are changing their food preferences. So in the, in the diet industry, 
a lot more plant-based products are getting consumed. You've got people much more concerned about the impact of what they're buying. Uh, you've got millennials, again, nearly 40% of them now will actually accept one job offer over another, even if it means taking a pay cut, if it means that they're working for a company that has better environmental credentials. So you're seeing loads of different uh, behaviors and motivations come to the surface during this time of uncertainty, anxiety, and stress, prioritizing social justice, prioritizing environmental uh, stewardship and responsibility. And so I think if you're looking for the global moral compass, and of course we can't generalize across all directions, but we can say that there is a huge trend that is making itself felt across many countries that is originating in our younger people, that is driving the ways in which we conceive of uh, business and how we how we show up in the world. So I can't help but, you know, maybe bring out my dark cloud over my head, which also adds into that, well, the economic prospects seem rather dour. Mm. With the environmental issue, it better be we should stop consuming stupidly, uh, which, co which corroborates, if you will, the economic story. So consumerism, hyper-consumerism, we should stop buying so much stupid things made in cheap ways by children and so on. Yeah, yeah. And so actually from another angle, even capitalism and democracy are under siege. Mm. It, it seems like it's going to be a very difficult future uh, to make business and hire people who are motivated to work yeah. for you. Absolutely. And I think that thing that the, the key question around motivation, when you think about ways in which especially younger people, but again, this extends across the generations, the ways in which they assess value. A lot of people have been priced out of housing markets. They don't have job security. They're not going to get, you know, with remote working, the, the status attached to a corner office. So what do you do when you can't pay people enough to secure a future that is safe or that is aspirational? You have to switch tack, right? You have to give people a sense of, for instance, greater meaning, a sense of purpose, a sense of intrinsic motivation, doing something that's aligned with your values, aligned with your interests, with the things that you find joy in, so that you show up for work, not just for the extrinsic goal of making enough money, which of course is a really important element, but with an intrinsic goal of, does this fulfill me at a deeper level? And so when we're talking about in the US, everyone's talking about the great resignation and elsewhere, it's not just about factoring in financial stability. It's also about, do I give a shit about what I do on a day-to-day -day basis? When the world is on fire, I have no security anyway, you know, in a privileged situation where you have the choice and it is one of privilege, what do I choose to do with that? How do I choose to spend my time, lend my resource um, and, and really, you know, spend probably most of the time that you're going to spend in your life, which is going to be at work. How do I do that in a way that is coherent and wise with, with who I want to be in my life? So it's kind of these deeper existential questions leading into the workspace and beyond. And I feel, Natalie, that you and I have a role because <laughs> that discourse, this discourse that you and I are sharing right now, I don't find it being understood, listened to uh, in two different populations. The CEO who earns a couple of million quid has four houses and people who run the city, who are the shareholders. They're like, well, wait a second, where's my profit? Where's my share price moving? 
and and as a CEO, they are are not really in touch with that other thing because I've got two million quid coming in. I don't mm. care about that. I, everything's fine as long as I keep pushing and making the numbers come in. And I mean, I think that you and I would probably agree. The numbers will not continue to come in if you continue with that mentality. So wake up. <laughs> yeah. Well, also the thing is for an economy to thrive, you need people who can pay for things and for people to pay for things, they need to be able to have an income. Like to me, it's just basic. <laughs> it's just kind of, and so I think, you know, it's interesting to hear you talk about democracy and capitalism being under siege. And I think a lot of people have not yet awoken to the fact that everything is so deeply connected that for the people, like you say, who are making huge amounts of money at the very top, for them to continue to do so means that the people who are beneath them have to be able to move that money. They have to make that money. But then I think there's some really other interesting conversations bleeding into this that I'm reading about now in terms of mindset shifts, in terms of the changes that are due to come. I'm just uh, finished reading a wonderful book called The Good Ancestor by... Um, by a chap called Krishnarich, I think is how you spell his surname. I'll put, I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> show, show in the notes. Absolutely brilliant book. He's also the partner of Kate Roworth, who developed Donut Economics. And in his book, he talks about our lack of cultivation of longer-term thinking, of um, putting into place structures and systems that enable us to measure long-term impact and think about how our economic systems, our political systems, our social systems are shaping futures in which, you know, the stakeholders of people will never meet. So you kind of, at the moment, we're living in such a way that we are essentially robbing future citizens of security, of food security, of biodiversity security, all the rest of it. So that's one very interesting book that talks about how we might change that. And another one which I've just started reading, which is wonderful, Rob Hopkins. It's called From What Is to What If. And it looks at some of the ways in which we can conceive of alternative futures with all of his work in transition towns, which model vastly different ways of doing things centered on community, on celebration, on local resilience. Um, and I've been reading elsewhere about um, for instance, localized currency, like mm. Bristol coin or whatever it is. We're mm -hmm. seeing these extraordinarily interesting grassroots changes that I imagine many people at the top of these systems who are benefiting from, well, legacy structures will probably not have that much connection with, awareness of, or interest in. And they're going to get bitten by this because mm. change is only slow until it starts bursting out into the mainstream and by then the roots have already taken hold mm -hmm. and people are not paying attention closely enough to all of the shift the positive work that's being done um and kind of going off on a tangent here but that's where I find myself most invigorated and excited at the moment because there is so much change that's happening uh, yeah, good. It, yeah Dory Clark wrote the book just mm. now called The Long Game mm. and it, it's like this where's the short-term fuse to our changes in order for us to thrive in the longer game. Mm -hmm. So riffing off of what you talked about in terms of new mindsets, you, you write about these most influential triggers for enhancing brand reputation. Mm -hmm. And I, I definitely looked at the, the, the list of four uh, twice, Natalie. You wrote ethics, social impact, having a genuine brand personality and fair treatment of employees. Mm. And I couldn't help but think, well, wait a second, what about where's product? 
from that? You know, how good is my product? So explain to us how these four elements are triggering better brand reputation. So essentially, if we think about it from a perspective of the way in which we build fruitful relationships with other people, and then we scale that up to brands, often we forget that brands have identities that we tend to um, see as kind of, kind of perceive traits in brands as we perceive traits in people. So we make inferences mm-hmm. about who they are, what they do, even though they're an abstract concept. So it's quite an interesting thing there. So if you think about those four qualities in a person, the kinds of people you probably want to have in your life embody those qualities. And so if we're thinking about the ways in which people show up for us, we want to make sure that socially we're going to get some value exchange there, that they're going to treat us kindly and fairly, that they're going to be um, at least driven by certain principles or ethics to which we also aspire. So there's that sense of mm, kind of the similarity attraction theory that if I value fairness, uh, that's going to be something which drives my affinities to a particular brand as well. And so, of course, if you're building products and services that are also people centric, that are going to give people a sense of, let's say, autonomy, and it's going to give them a sense of competence and it's going to give them a sense of belonging which are some of the needs that are fundamental to self-determination that also plays into the mix and so if you design products and services with that in mind it's going naturally to be much more resonant you're going to build much more longer term uh, loyalty positive feedback better word of mouth so it's really a question of the product and the service being an extension of those traits qualities and values that then you know sort of give people a sense of who you are as a brand what they can expect from that interaction so it's kind of I see the product and service as a result of as opposed to a central element too which really I I would say the way you describe it justifies or characterizes this idea that culture is the new marketing Mm. oh that's yes I'm intrigued to hear what you what you mean when you say that because that sounds very delicious (laughs) Well, um, and, and I wanted to um, give a hat tip to my friend Evelyn Starr, who wrote a book called Teenage Wasteland, mm. where she describes brands as adolescents and very much that personification component of a brand and our relationship with what turns out to be generally people within the brand as yes. customers or just you know various stakeholders along the way. Yeah, I think that the the way we are within must be coherent and congruent with the way we are without mm-hmm. as to say of facing towards your stakeholders external stakeholders mm-hmm. so if you're in the hairdressing industry uh, selling products to them you need to think about the distributors who are selling into them you need to think about the salon owners and managers and stylists and all these other people who you're mm-hmm. servicing uh, but you you need to be managing your internal team in a way that's coherent with the way you're trying to sell to mm. the customers sell yeah. through the distributors and everybody should feel part of that family belonging to it mm. that's the the general gist behind it which i think really speaks to these four notions of your ethics and, and natalie i wanted since you have all this background in psychology mm-hmm. i wanted to dig in on ethics because i my my sort of gestalt talks about needing to be yourself at work Mm. and and the way i i'm not like an ethicist or a a really a learned person but for me ethics is deeply personal Mm. and therefore 
what you're saying is we need to be deeply personal at work. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. So I think there are, when we're talking about ethics, we're talking about the qualities or characteristics that shape how we behave and also why we behave certain ways. And I think it's <clears throat> intractably linked to values. So if you have a value, for instance, of universalism and benevolence, and you want to ensure that you are extending stewardship and goodwill as best as possible, not just to your fellow people, but to all of the other species that we inhabit this world with, then that value will translate into ethical principles, which might be um, principles around not polluting or principles around regenerating land when it's been impoverished, etc. And so I think if we're thinking about values espoused through a code of conduct, which can be conceived of in the abstract form as ethics and embodied through a set of principles. So I, I believe in, you know, I feel motivated and believe in the values of benevolence and universalism. Ethically, it means that I believe in these specific uh, practices or I want to make sure that I'm upholding certain rules. How do we check those rules being implemented? Well, the principle might be, if I believe in not polluting, uh, we're gonna make sure that we are testing as a company the um, waste products of whatever it is that we're you know, creating. So you can kind of follow through this chain from abstract to something quite concrete. And I think if you can do that, you'll find that while the ethics and the values that we embody are very personal, they also have some deeply universal qualities to them as well. So it may be that um, what I specifically care about might be the environment, but of course that is deeply linked to social justice issues, as we've started to see in a lot of uh, more mature movements. When you talk about um, human rights, we're also talking about a wider net of interconnected concerns. So as soon as you zoom out from the personal or you zoom deeper into the roots of where those things interconnect with other systems of thinking on a wider level, you see that these things are very much interconnected. And so I think when I think about the ways in which we personally choose to engage with certain brands or in certain businesses or in certain behaviors there's also the question of well what are the values that I see other brands espouse that connect with these deeper set of values that I have that allow me to live in an ethical way so it's finding a specific way for you to personally show up and mapping that onto a larger movement a larger set of values that then allow you to kind of through your work or the brands that you consume allow you to find vehicles to express those values in, in a way that is ethical, bearing on your particular set of codes of conduct. That's quite a long answer. Does that make sense? I don't know if I've kind of rambled off into the organic weeds. <laughs> all good, all good. Too. I absolutely love it. And, and obviously this notion of breaking down or, or rendering concrete these abstract terms is such the, the necessary thing to do. And, and everyone can have a word, a value, they can have the same one, but it's the expression of it that that companies or, or leaders need to yes pull out. So another thing now we've we've been talking about personal issues and 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 I loved how you uh, it, it highlighted this idea that personalization thwarts our empathy hmm. because if you if there's one thing anyone in marketing is doing oh it's all about personalization and hyper personalization and and make everyone feel like an individual and everything and and there you are saying well wait a second um, i'm not that you're going to say no to that type of marketing but 
it actually hurts our empathy. So, you know, since I'm interested and invested in that topic, mm-hmm. explain to us how a, a marketer should do personalization or at least anyway, uh, why and how personalization thwarts our empathy. Mm-hmm. So I think you you hit the nail on the head there with this idea of individualization. So when you when we talk about empathy, essentially, most of the time we're talking about affective empathy. So feeling what it feels like to be in someone else's shoes, not just having the cognitive cognitive empathy of thinking what it might be to be in their shoes. So we're talking about something which is embodied. It's a felt sense of I get more of your experience by having experienced your story or having heard um an anecdote that somehow puts me in mind and in emotion of what you experienced. So with empathy being that, putting ourselves in someone else's place, um, in order to do that, we need to be taken out of our own, right? Because we have our own limited set of experiences, biases, histories, etc. And so when we're talking about hyper-personalized experiences that reinforce what we're exposed to based on past behaviors, not only are we narrowing down a set of experiences to reflect one person's choice. We're also narrowing down that individual's choice in terms of the future uh, products, services, content they might encounter based on their past behaviors. So it means that even within that narrow bandwidth of an individual's experience, they're getting given tighter and tighter bands of product and content that are not going to help them to open up their minds and encounter perhaps novel or divergent or challenging content, et cetera, and perspectives. So it's a really tricky, it's a really tricky theme because what we really need now, if we're thinking about solving a lot of these complex challenges is a sense of um, being able to take risk, being able to move outside of our comfort zone, to ask difficult questions respectfully and to have our ideas challenged and our assumptions broken open so that we can actually grow And this is one of the most important needs as humans. We have to be able to grow. We have to be able to learn and to develop. And at the extreme side of the personalization equation, we're really stripping that away from people. And so that's what I think about and and mean when I'm talking about personalization thwarting our capacity and our uh, ability to encounter experiences that will allow us to become more empathetic. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. And interestingly, Natalie, you also talk about uh, artificial intelligence and Mm. empathy, a topic even nearer uh, to my soul um, (laughs) through my artificial empathy book. And you say it is the most difficult ability for AI to replicate. And is that because it's impossible for a machine to feel or is it impossible for a machine to think in our shoes? Well, I think based on the, and I'm not an AI expert by any stretch whatsoever, but what I have gleaned from speaking with people who are well, yeah, much, much better versed in these, in these subjects. um, I I think it is probably possible if we create sentient life for 
it to then have its own set of experiences, whether that's thought and feeling, etc. So I, you know, and I'm a massive Star Trek fan. I love sci-fi. So I think that what, you know, if we're talking about the realm of possibilities, it would be naive to think otherwise, as you know, as far as I can tell. But I think what's tricky is that if you're creating a life form, which is essentially what we're talking about, that is um, that is biologically so dissimilar to the life forms that we are you know when we think about empathy across species it's much easier to empathize with a mammal for instance than maybe an insect or maybe a reptile why is that it's because biologically we perceive ourselves as more similar so if we think about it from that perspective um i would imagine that the life form that we are and the life form that we might give rise to through technology would be so dissimilar. How do you bridge that gap? How do you give a human an experience of what it's like to be a machine and vice versa? Um, and this is where like the limit of my argument is going to bump up against people who are deep experts on this. But from a from a more psychological and embodied perspective, um, that's that's how I would begin to answer that question. It's the embodiment Entirely. of experience that's going to be very different. Yeah. And ultimately, well, at least even before that, actually, sorry, there's a, a bigger question, which is the ability for a machine to have that empathy. It requires the data to know your context. Mm. And, and the issue there we bump up against is privacy. Holy smokes. Oh, yeah. And how much <laughs> data are you prepared to give to a machine and in or trust in a company that's going to manipulate that data potentially to flog you more merchandise because they know who you are and what you are thinking. Uh oh. Yeah, well, exactly. And I was just reading headlines this morning. I've not dived into the article, but I was reading about headlines around the harvesting of um, facial information that has been happening and the new, I don't know when this episode is going out, but the new issues around you know, do consent and privacy around that. And so, you know, there are so many complications and human rights, potential human rights abuses connected with the harvesting of personal information, whether it's biometric stuff, whether it's um, data that we harvest from people's online activities and what have you. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's an area that, that definitely needs to become a bit more mature um, before I think we can even begin to ad address in a meaningful way um the ways in which we use human data to furnish ai with the right information to be able to build models that allow it to create some sense of empathy with humans i mean it's just my concern is that we don't do that because it's slow and it's time consuming and it's based probably not out of financial motives but again it comes down to values and ethics so it does. You know, who's going to put in the work not well-funded groups of people that's for sure uh, yeah that's that's our that's where we come in natalie <laughs> Um, I, I feel like I wanted to just address another part, another chapter in your book, um, which was is all about adapting to virtual first relationships since mm. we're sort of in the world of tech and humanity. So, um, first of all, talk us through the the, the problem that I, that your chapter uh, puts down. Sure. So we're talking about virtual first relationships. There's quite a lot of things that spring to mind in terms of some of the themes that are the most tricky. One of them, um, and I'm quoting a wonderful psychotherapist, her name is Dr. Gillian Isaacs Russell. She talks about functional equivalence, the idea that our conversation, as enriching as it is, is not functionally equivalent. It's not the same as being uh, face to face with one another, doing this interview in a studio with a cup of tea, um, 
and that 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 is really central to the issues that then arise when we're talking about virtual first or virtual primary relationships. So let's unpack that a bit. So functional equivalence means that the two experiences are pretty much the same. So the virtual and the in-person. The things that make them so dissimilar include everything from having a limited range of cues to work from. So we're just talking about um, the content of our speech we've got access to, we've got facial expressions, I can see on my screen, we've got the intonation in the voice, perhaps our hands if they lift into the sphere of what the camera could capture. But beyond that, uh, we don't have a sense of gesture, we don't have a sense of shared olfactory environment, of temperature, of scent, we don't have a sense of warmth if we're touching each other to, you know, shake hands or to pass each other, you know, microphone, whatever it is. We also lack the physical or microbes or the microbes <laughs> that's a whole nother well and you know the anti-fragile system of the immune yeah, 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 yeah. but then you know there's also the thing of not physically moving through space to go and meet someone so we're missing a vital aspect of how our memory is encoded when you look at neuroscientific research around the ways in which systems in the brain that are responsible for physical spatial awareness um, being connected to the, the systems in the brain responsible for the laying down of memory i mean there's some extraordinary stuff you know if you migrate all of that kind of embodied physical experience of walking to a meeting sitting down with someone having the interaction with them having the affordance of being able to reach out to a glass of water or to the hand whatever that's all stripped away when you go into a virtual environment, whether it's an immersive three-dimensional virtual environment or indeed just a flat 2D experience, it means that the quality of the experience shifts. It's less memorable typically. Um, we are less likely to find uh, the nuance in the experience of the communication that's happening. Um, so there's lots of negative stuff, <laughs> mm. but there is also a lot of positive stuff. So for instance, it can be very democratizing. If you're talking about for instance, um, someone that I know works at the Bank of England, and they were describing how before, if you had a meeting room, which was a certain size and only a certain number of top execs could come in. Now, when Zoom meetings are enabled, you can invite way more people to come in to observe. And so suddenly you have a meeting space which access uh, which allows access from more people. You don't have to repeat meetings because everyone's in on the same one. Um, you have the ability for people who, for instance, aren't able or find it uncomfortable to maintain eye contact to be able to have less uncomfortable or anxiety provoking conversations through the screen. You make it possible to access talent from all over the world, regardless of um, the ability to travel. So there's also the question of mobility and people who are less able bodied. So there's, there's also all of that element that comes into play. Um, but one has to be very conscious and intentional about making sure that the qualities that are stripped out are not undermined by going virtual first. So being attentive to how you build culture, how you include quieter voices, how you build psychological safety, how you re-enrich the conversation with emotional content in the absence of nonverbal cues, et cetera. So it's, it's a very rich area. Um, mm. yeah. well, I love it. I My daughter recently began a job and, and the company said, no, you're only coming into the office two days a week. Hmm. Uh, you can choose which two, essentially. And, and for an onboarding process, it feels very virtual, as in hmm. non-existent, yeah. um, in another way of explaining virtual. And, um, and I think that the, the idea of parsing out the positives and negatives 
on balance, we have to absolutely compensate for those negatives and be very intentional about it. And on balance, yes, there are positives, but we really think I need to, we need to focus because I say many executives might be saying, well, at least I don't have to do the one and a half hour commute. I can save on office space. Um, Maybe I can chip down on the amount I'm paying people because they're just going and staying at home. Sure, I have to compensate by having a better microphone and a better, you know, other material to make it happen. But it's very quick for them to, I think, uh, come up with economic ideas, Mm. uh, efficiencies and effectiveness. But I I feel like going back to our initial proposition, which is around the notions of ethics and how we treat our employees in a fair way. Mm. I think there's got to be we have to step up in terms of the regime or the regimen. Uh, how companies are dealing with this idea of hybrid or digital only. Absolutely. And I think one of the interesting things is going to is going to be to see which companies go down the route of stripping back and doing the, you know, the kind of perhaps more economically viable thing and which companies focus on, as Brian Solis talks about in our interview, like the employee experience or, uh, you know, the, the focus that companies may have if they've got people coming in for a few days a week on well-being on a sense of community, on purpose. So so we've got these very interesting competing needs. Uh, And of course we want the flexibility where it's possible, but we also want to do things which give us a sense of meaning. And that typically is found in community. And typically community is enabled to flourish by shared meaning-making, ritual space, sharing food together. And that's something which doesn't lend itself so well to virtual formats. So it's really, Mm. how do we make them the best and the most out of both forms of working. And even within that, there are so many different ways. You know, one virtual experience is very different to the next, as are in-person experiences. So it's it's back to your to your word there. It's really down to intention. And how do you really make sure you're making the most of each circumstance um, going forward? Another topic of, of wonderful interest in your book, Business Unusual. Um, <laughs> leadership. So you talk about a need for a new form of leadership. And, and the word that I picked up on is post-heroic. Yeah. Um, how would you summarize what that looks like? Post-heroic new leadership. Okay. So post-heroic um, refers to going beyond the traditional kind of idea of heroic leadership, by which I'm talking about kind of, you know, a, a dominant single authoritative figure whose model is power over other people and getting them to do what they want. So that's um, what most of us would think of, perhaps, if we conceive of a CEO. So someone who's really um, manning the ship and usually is going to be a white guy at the top of a company. And that's fine. But what we're seeing now is that when it comes to complex problems, when it comes to heightened performance, diversity is absolutely the linchpin in performance, in resilience, in... um, cultures that are more invigorating and enlivening and in order to have more diverse cultures and organizations it's rarely achieved by having one person making all the decisions at the top and of course it comes back to your point about empathy which is how do we build empathy and I think when we talk about post-heroic leadership we're thinking more about transformational leadership so yes in an organization I would imagine most organizations don't want to go down the route of Um, flat structures often these don't work very effectively so you still need someone to um, to be calling the shots but maybe we can think of it more as a conductor 
who is not the person who's necessarily playing the loudest instrument, but rather working with all of the extraordinary people in the orchestra to bring out their qualities and get them to sing from the same song sheet. So in this perspective, we're talking about leaders who can model the values that they want to see embedded in the culture. We're talking about people who are um, helping their employees to thrive by investing in their well-being, investing in their upskilling, in their competencies, um, who's someone who welcomes feedback and uh, gives greater autonomy to the people beneath them, quote unquote, to make decisions. So it's more towards a slightly more distributed democratic uh, model. They still retain the power, but they're doing so in a way that is empowering, not putting power over the people that work in their organization. Yeah, for sure, they, they still must hold responsibility because if, yes. if you distribute responsibility ultimately, and it feels like nobody is running the ship. And I guess, you know, there are models where this, this can work really well that we've seen, um, like in the transition towns examples, where you've got more of a nodal system with an ecosystem approach. So you've got people who take care of their own individual areas, but they're all very much connected. I have yet to, and I haven't really hunted for this. I'd be so fascinated to hear if you or the listeners have got examples, but I'd be really interested to hear if there are companies that exist in more of this kind of cooperative, collaborative way? Because you do know that there are lots of co-ops, but I don't know of any that are quite as, um, that embody the principles quite as fully as maybe they'd like to. Well, so. I, I think that, you know, this notion of, well, there's an idealism and a pragmatism. Hmm. Uh, Ricardo Semler, who, uh, this, the Brazilian guy, he's got a, he did a great TED talk about how he uh, essentially allows for everyone to pick their own salaries. Hmm. Wow. is an example uh, that comes to mind about sort of upending the the hierarchical approach. Actually, I want, there's one other area. I mean, I had a bunch of other areas, but we can't do everything. I did. I wanted to talk about resilience and, and a few things, but I, I feel like I need to talk about one more piece. You, a lot of your book, you, you talk about authenticity hmm. and you make a quote from Coco Chanel, hard times arouse an instinctive desire for authenticity. Hmm. We are in hard times. And then Later on, you talk about this idea of self-congruence. Mm -hmm. and, and then since, you know, I worked at L'Oréal, so the cosmetics company, um, I, I'm wondering just how brands that are selling dreams of making you 20 years mm. younger, <laughs> Natalie, uh, yeah. can feed into this idea of self-congruence <laughs> and, 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 and luxury companies in general that are obviously more aspirational, that are showing you a world that could be yours. Well, if there was economic prosperity, everyone's earning a lot of money and, oh, but that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, so, and yeah, so there's there's a really interesting tension here. So there's the self-congruence, which is about being in alignment with, through our actions and our deeds, et cetera, in alignment with who we are. And then there's ideal self-congruence, which is more about, as you say, the aspirational. And I think what's really interesting is that a lot of companies historically tend to sell you the aspired reality. So you aspire to be this young, you aspire to be this thin, and you know, they aspire to whatever the, the, the fetishes of the time. So this, this moment in time, we fetishize youth and it may be you know plump bottoms or you know whatever it is and you know in the 1800s it was something completely different so whatever the aspiration is of the specific time and culture in which we live companies are going to try and milk that now you also have um, some really interesting examples of when companies 
buck the trend because obviously if you're constantly sold a dream of being able to look like you're 20 and you're in your 50s and what's wrong with being in your 50s I, I think that's brilliant if you get to be fit and healthy and live a full life like that's what I want to aspire to um but if you're telling people that they can have something that they cannot have to your point at some point there's going to be a dissonance between your actual experience of who it is to be you and who you want to be and so that's when you end up running into deep problems which makes space for other companies to say well don't worry about the aspirational stuff um, maybe you are for instance if you look at the dove campaign beautiful as you are or uh, if we're thinking about being represented in all of the skin shades all of the mobility that we have all of the age differences that we have whatever it might be all of the diversity that exists within a vibrant human population if you say to people who you are is enough you're okay let's celebrate that then you're talking about giving people permission to tap into a lived experience a lived experience of their own which is validated it is seen it is made meaningful and i think that is much more deeply powerful over the long term than the aspirational self which is perhaps completely impossible for many people uh, and it's not to say that we shouldn't encourage people to aspire to live out their dreams or their goals. I think that's really important. But it's also about having a deeper recognition of our shared humanity and the diversity that, that exists um, and that should be celebrated. So I think that's the key thing It's how do we show up as brands and um, appeal to the people that we want to appeal to in an authentic way, in a way that, that celebrates and empowers who they already are, because that's going to be a lot more resonant than selling them a pipe dream, in my opinion. Mm. It makes me think that, and, and clearly I, I feel like we do need to have ambition, but it, it it's sort of taking the I out of ambition and making it more about we. You, you need to make the individual feel heard as a collective, and now it's a bigger collective, this moral compass we're talking about, because it includes the earth, it includes people we're not used to necessarily having, mm in our midst yeah natalie <laughs> how much fun was this so much um, fun very existential <laughs> indeed um how can someone follow you track you down use your services and of course get your book business unusual by kogan page thank you very much for asking me um so best places to find me natalienahai.com you can also find me on twitter instagram and linkedin natalienahai and for the hive podcast uh, that's housed in many places you can find it on spotify on itunes on stitcher soundcloud and um if you want to get in touch just reach out to me via my website and uh, the same goes for the book. You can check out businessunusualthebook.com, an extremely long URL. And you can also check out um, a free tool which I designed in collaboration with Dr. Kiki Leutner of Goldsmiths called thevaluesmap.com, which um, is a 40-point questionnaire. It's fun, it's interactive, and it gives you feedback as to the values that your organization espouses and then how to embody that and express it through your mission your culture your branding uh, and it's really to help people grasp the idea of what values are analyze what's important to them and then express them uh, with more purpose i guess and clarity so those are all of the different things that you can check out and uh, suffice it to say thank you so much for for creating the space and hosting such interesting and meaningful conversations Hey, Natalie, my pleasure. I, I validate the values um, uh, exercise. I did it myself. I very much enjoyed it. Thank you again, Natalie. 
Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on minterdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.